Hi friends, and welcome to the Universal Sisterhood podcast. We're hoping to create a place where women can delve deeper, lift their gaze higher, live freer, laugh louder, smile brighter, and be the authentic woman she was designed to be. Every human heart has been created to be seen, known, and loved. So this is the place where women can share their story. Welcome to episode 91. In today's episode, I chat with Marilis. She is an American from Jersey who was a nun, discerned out of the convent, now lives in Florence, Italy, and works for the Vulnerable People Project as a legislative and diplomatic liaison officer. She is fun and witty, smart and courageous, and just a delight to talk to. You're going to absolutely love her. start, Marilis, I would love for you to tell us who you are and what your life looks like right now. Hi, um, so my name is Marilis Pinheiro. I am currently living in Florence, Italy. Um, I help to run a nonprofit organization called the Vulnerable People Project. Technically, my title is Legislative and Diplomatic Liaison. Um, we do a lot of different type of work. Um, my specific role is helping to evacuate and resettle refugees, um, mostly in Afghanistan, but we also have um, projects in Ukraine, Africa, China, really anywhere where there are vulnerable and persecuted populations, we're there. Wow. So that's, that's kind of my... How did you get into that? Funnily enough, um, so last summer, or actually two summers ago now, I was, I decided to go to Italy um, to, well, this is part of my story a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was in the convent for some time, have since it turned out, um, but went to Italy, to Rome, to visit my former mother superior as soon as Italy opened up for travel during the pandemic. Yeah. And it was only supposed to be a week-long visit because I had another job at the time. I was also in graduate school. And so, I, you know, I, I was like, I just don't have weeks and weeks to stay and I was kind of in one of those places in my life where I was just kind of going about things with the through the motions I wasn't Hmm. passionate about what I was doing it was very kind of a mundane state um and while I was in Rome visiting with my former mother superior out of the blue she was just like why don't you move back to Italy and I was like what like how would I just drop everything, you know, in my life, and I can't just up and go. And she was like, why don't you pray about it? And so I went to Assisi. I had already had plans to go to Assisi just for a day, and I was at the tomb of St. Francis praying, and I just kind of, like, gave him this list of, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to serve the vulnerable. I want to have, you know, I'm a very mission-oriented type of a person. And so, and I've always been passionate about human rights, and so I said to him, you know, whatever is going to come my way, I'd like to do this. And um, and I was like, and if I'm supposed to stay in Italy longer, just make it happen somehow. Well, within maybe three, four hours, I get this Instagram message from this girl that I went to college with. We were acquainted, but not like close friends or anything. Hmm. And she... Um, 
was like, I'd love to see you, but she was five hours north in the north of Italy. And, and I said, I, you know, I don't really have time. I'm sorry. I'd love to see you, but I'm leaving tomorrow. And she was like, well, you know, if you just happen to want to stay longer, I have an apartment that's available. And I was like, oh, are you subletting it? And she said, no, it's already been paid. The rent's been paid through for the next three months. It's I'm getting married and I'm going to be moving into the apartment where I'll be living with my husband. And I just kind of was like, is this a sign? Not, I'm a very cynical person and I don't believe in outward signs like that. Um, but I took it to prayer, went back to Rome, mentioned it to my spiritual director. And he was like, I think this is an opportunity that you don't want to just let pass, you know? And so I ended up staying in Italy that summer. It was a very transformative experience for me. And a couple of months into my stay, the United States decided to withdraw from Afghanistan. Yes. And an acquaintance of mine from pro-life work that I was doing in D.C., I saw that he was um, helping to evacuate Afghans. And I just felt very helpless with the entire situation. I'm the type of person that, you know, whatever little I can do, I just want to try to help mm. instead of complaining about it. <laughs> so I reached out to him and I was like, hey, if you you know, need help with this evacuation stuff, or if I can connect you with people in Italy or maybe the Vatican, um, let me know. I'd be happy to do that. And that's how that wow. I became acquainted with the Vulnerable People Project. And um, three months later, when I was back in the United States, I ran into my now boss, and he offered me a job to work with them full time. And we didn't, at the time, VPP was a very you know, small organization. We were only working with Afghanistan, um, and it's since really expanded and grown wow. I mean, in a way that we did not see happening a year ago. So it's it's kind of wild. Wow. I didn't even know this kind of a job was possible or existed. Um, so now do you it. now do you believe in outward signs? Like, <laughs> I'm still a little more cynical, but I definitely pay more attention. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. No, and I I mean, it really is a gift. It's everything I could have, you know, yeah, it's very much a gift. It's everything I could have dreamed of, of, you know, getting to really devote my life to, to work that I feel passionate about. And um, of course, you know, it's exhausting and the day in, day out is a lot. I travel a ton, yeah. um, but I, I can't imagine doing anything else now after having experienced this. So wow, <laughs> I love amazing. it. I did, I did actually see um, a clip that you had on Instagram of um, reuniting a little boy with his mother and father. And, yes, that, so, and that's why I was yeah. totally confused about who you were. I'm thinking, what, what does this girl do? I don't really share my work too much on Instagram. I used to joke, you know, and people, it took forever for me to even say who I worked for or what I did. Um, and I used to joke with people that I would, I would tell, you know, when they'd ask, I'd say, oh, I'm a stay-at-home single woman. <laughs> <laughs> now with a dog. <laughs> with Now I have a dog, so I say, I'm a stay-at-home single dog mom, which gets people all worked up. I'm like, I'm not serious about any of this. You know, I'm trying to be funny, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, I but then I did start um, sharing a little bit more about it, and yeah, that was one that was one of our cases where the the baby was separated from mom and dad during the bombing at Abigail in Afghanistan, mm. and 
mom and dad were shoved one way, grandma was holding the baby, was shoved another way, and mom was a translator for the U.S. military, so they were very high risk wow. um, from the Taliban, and so they really had no other choice but to get on the plane and come to the United States, and so, yeah, I worked to get them here. Get so the, the mother had the baby. The baby the was with had the baby, Okay, because yeah. I thought, how on earth did you track that baby down? If it so just... mom, mom got in touch with Jason Jones, who's our CEO and founder. Mm. Actually, no, mom, I mean, that was crazy. God is so something else. I mean, mom was told she needed to abort her baby. She was pregnant with baby number two. Mom was told she was in a, had a very complicated pregnancy and was advised to abort by her doctor. In Afghanistan and or in America? When she, in America, when she already, when they already got here, mm-hmm. and um, she went to a pregnancy center thinking it was an abortion clinic, and it was a pro-life pregnancy center. And she told them her story, and they knew of Jason. Wow! Because Jason's done a ton of work in the pro-life movement, and um, Jason just happened to be an hour away from where they were, and he was like, "Meet me at this coffee shop." And met mom and dad and the, at the and the people at the clinic. Within maybe a few hours, we were able to get baby and grandma food, diapers, baby formula, wow. like all these things they needed in Afghanistan. And then got her another doctor's opinion. And she was able to receive care. And she's since had a very beautiful, healthy baby girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how we, we got in touch with them. So, and, so how, um, what was the working. time frame between meeting you and having the, being reunited with their baby, with their child? It was nine, ten months. Oh. It was a long, it was a long process. Yeah, giving yeah. birth and again, grandma, really. Yeah, <laughs> right. And grandma didn't have proper documents. She, I think, her passport had already expired, etc. So, you know, of course, a, a one-year-old baby couldn't travel by himself. Um, and so thankfully, his aunt was able to travel with him okay. from Afghanistan. From Afghanistan, they went to Doha, and then from Doha to the United States. And, if, and you know, the State Department did really help with this case as well. I have to give it to them because mm-hmm. it was it's, it's usually complicated, the whole process of evacuating and resettling refugees, but it's a whole other level when it's a baby <laughs> involved. Yeah. And she's a translator for the United yes. States. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, there really are the priority as far as who we evacuate and resettle out of Afghanistan. Are, they're called SIVs, so it stands for Special Immigrant Visas, and they're people who have helped our military or worked with the U.S. government in some way. And, wow. you know, the Taliban is just hunting them down, and so mm-hmm. they really, you know, are needed to be evacuated or, or hit, kept hidden until we can evacuate them. Wow, that's amazing. That's yeah. incredible work. Thank I, you. That that's it's really incredible. Is, is, Thank is, does you. grandma have any chance of coming out or no? Probably not, mm-hmm. but we are still able to support her, mm-hmm. you know, with food deliveries and we we do food deliveries and supply delivering supplies and medicines um in Afghanistan. We realized last winter, you know, what can we do to help alleviate the suffering? Well, before, you know, if they can't get out or before we can get them out. And so that that's a big part of our work is providing food, coal supplies. We have every, we, we did it this time at Christmas time. 
for the second year. We call it the Coal for Christmas campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, to, you know, as a play on words, but really coal is so essential. They have horrible, horrible winters in Afghanistan. And so mm. we deliver food, coal, oil, things mm. like that. That's amazing. That's a totally yeah. different tangent to where I thought we were going to go on this podcast. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no. I just love my work so much that when people ask me about it, I get into a tangent. I love hearing about, about it. it but... I was so curious because I saw this re, you know, reunited family. I'm thinking, I'm yeah. so confused about this woman. I have to talk to her. What, <laughs> what on earth does she do? Well, we really, you know, we get, we're a very small organization. There are four of us who are like full-time members of the of the team the vpp team and then we contract out a lot of other people um but we get very close with the families and the people that we help Mm -hmm. so often you know we can't the whole like evacuation thing it seems very almost glamorous like Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. that it happens quickly but it's not i mean it's months and months and months of waiting and and, yeah and, and working with different governments to get you know their paperwork and their visas and everything, all that in order. And so you wow. get very close with families because like, with mom, especially, you know, I was texting with her almost every day, mm-hmm. um, especially towards the end of after he had been um, taken from Afghanistan and brought to Doha, him and his aunt, while they were in the the refugee place, um, you know, she was just so worried and he got sick too. He got a, he had, a bad cold or something and and she was just like how much longer mm-hmm. it's just really they, they just need somebody to talk to or just know that somebody's advocating for them and so yeah. when we finally got word that he was being manifested on a flight to the united states she asked if we could be there for it and initially i was like you know this is a very intimate family experience and i don't want to like harp in on that or mm. you know mm. i mean i hadn't met her in person at this point either and she said, no, like you are family now. And we still to this day keep in touch. And I do this with a lot of anybody that we've helped or worked with. Um, Jason, too. We just really try to be as present as possible. It's it's hard to be as present as possible with everybody. There are hundreds of people on our list. But yeah, wow. um, just to know that they're not being forgotten and that we are thinking of them and we're praying for them when we're doing everything we can. Mm-hmm. Um does, advocate it, for does it get overwhelming? I know I, when I um, first started teaching, I worked in a really um, poor area and I would come home from work and just cry, I'd actually cry all the way home just thinking yeah. it's so cyclical. There's nothing I can do to stop what's going on. Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are times where I'm going through their passports and I just see their little faces, you know, of the of the especially the children. It kills me or... Um, I think the first time I really kind of, I had to tell Jason I need to take a day was we went to the Ukraine in April. Mm. So this was in the beginning of the war. Mm. And, um, we, we received requests for help almost immediately. And we realized pretty early on that we should probably go to assess the situation and see how we could best use our resources to help in whatever way. And so we ended up going and on the trip back, I was fine, but it was when I, this was before I moved to Italy. So I was still living in New York at the time. And um, I just remember going to a coffee shop and people were just going about their business, like 
there wasn't a war happening on the other side of the world. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, do people know what's going on? Or, you know, it was a very overwhelming yeah. kind of realization that there's so many suffering and we're just going about it like nothing's happening. Mm. And, um, yeah, so there are times where I'm like, I need to take an afternoon or a day to just how do you how do you process how do you live a life because you live a full life I can you know you yes. you live a very um well it looks outwardly wonderful <laughs> thank you and you, you're always gorgeous and you've got beautiful make I always look at I mean how does she do that how, how? I honestly I think it comes down to I hate to be like it comes down to discipline but I'm a pretty disciplined person so um and really kind of ordering my life um, in a way that helps me to be, I hate to say balanced because there is no balance. Like yeah. there is always something going on or people are like, what is, what's your work-life balance? Like, I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Yeah. Um, but prioritizing what's important to me and what helps me function. And so prayer yeah. is like number one. I really, I talk by my holy hour often because if I don't do it, I turn into like a crazy monster yeah me too and so so really prioritizing that prioritizing <clears throat> prioritizing silence in my life because mm. you know like my phone is constant there's not an hour or a time in my day or night when it's not going off and so I need to take time to prioritize silence and just when I come home to my families even though it's a rarity to really just be present with my family because it helps to ground me to be with people who aren't like yeah you know, wanting yeah. something or like yeah. asking me questions about this or that or um, yeah, just or, or with my friends too, like really spending time with those who know me well mm. and keep me grounded in that way. Yeah. But do you, do, yeah, you, do you ever feel guilty or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Yes. How, how do you, I suppose, I remember when we had the, um, when the world closed in and <laughs> Yeah. We, we like I live in a beautiful suburb with I have a mm-hmm. very a big house and big garden and you know we could still walk around and I just felt you and you kind of like are annoyed that you're stuck you know mm-hmm. you're, you've been limited your wings have been clipped and then you think about what's going on in Afghanistan yeah. and what's what's happening what was happening in Ukraine at the time and you think why am I feeling so agitated when I have it really good like right it's I should not be feeling like this this is really selfish but you know it's such small small problems compared to what's going on in the world but you and then you you have that whole guilt cycle of I shouldn't I should be grateful of what I've got oh my goodness yeah for sure especially I have a little bit of a shopping problem (laughs) I just really enjoy shopping for nice things. So it's it definitely is something that I'm constantly bump like my especially in my mind, you know, when I'm when I ju- when I make a purchase, I'm like, how did I just do that? Or why did I just do that? Yeah, like, like this could feed a that, village. Yes, yeah, yes. That this could literally feed X amount of families for X amount of months. I mean that goes through my brain, you know? Mm-hmm. Or um when I'm inconvenienced, like little inconveniences, mm. like my flight is delayed or I'm stuck in traffic. Um, yeah. And I mean, 
I still am trying to figure out how to cope with that. I think a lot of the time is I just, I'm like, well, I'm just going to devote myself even more to what I'm doing. Mm. Um, mm. But it definitely is like a constant guilt trip in yeah. a way. I think I've actually asked my followers, like, do you ever, do you ever struggle with this too? Or how do you cope with it? Mm. Um, I think a lot of the time too is remembering like, like my suffering, though obviously it's not as great as someone who's starving in Afghanistan by any means. Like it can still be redemptive if I yeah. offer it up, you know, to yeah. Jesus. Um, so re- remembering that as well, and and I understand too. Like my my blessings are very much a gift from Him. I I mean, literally every even my work or um, getting to travel or anything I get to do, I just really believe it, believe it's, it's a blessing and a Mm. gift and to not address it as such would be like insulting the Lord, you Mm. know, Mm. to say, no, thank you. Yeah. Um, Because so many are starving to death. Like, I don't think I would have what I have without him. Mm. Um, Yeah. I suppose it it, it all starts from gratitude, doesn't it? Your your disposition. Living life in a place of gratitude Mm. all right so now let's let's wind back a a fair few years what what caught my attention to you um (laughs) initially and then it all started to unravel I kept thinking oh my gosh this girl is so interesting was your Instagram handle and it's called x nun on the run yeah. And at first I thought, oh, here we go. This is going to be someone who's critical and disgruntled and, you know, everything that goes with being an ex-nun. And you yeah. totally threw me because you're a um, practicing Catholic, but also somebody who's totally in love with the church. So I would love to know a little bit of your story, if you could share some of that with our listeners. Yeah, so um, I was born and raised in New York City, grew up in... Is that why you... Can I just interrupt? Is that why you said coffee? At first I thought, (laughs) where did she go? Oh, it's a coffee shop. (laughs) People, I... Okay, listen, my accent used to be so much thicker, so I I am proud of how far I've gone. Oh, well, I had to rethink. What did she say? (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Yes, coffee or I don't even know how to say it any other way. Coffee. um, All right. So that's why you have coffee, right? (laughs) Yes. Um, Single family household. uh, Lived with my mom. Um, She's Filipina. So Mm. like I feel like typical, stereotypical Filipina, very devoutly Catholic. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we prayed the rosary. Well, she kind of forced us to pray the rosary as a family growing up. And we went to church every Sunday. I went to Catholic school my entire life. Um, From a pretty early age, always kind of like had a love for Jesus. I think just growing up with this picture everywhere and um, my earliest childhood memories are, are, you know, praying the rosary with my grandmother. And she really kind of planted that seed of like, he will, he will never abandon you or anything you need. You just take it to prayer and so the idea of religious life was always kind of I think in the back of my mind Mm -hmm. um even though I didn't want to admit it later but um when I was in college started to really discern the call to enter the convent it just became one of those things that the more I avoided it the more it seemed to 
pester me. Um, and it was one of those things to where I didn't want to tell like anyone that I was doing this. At one point, I went on a discernment visit thing with these Dominican nuns. And there was a girl that I, that I went to college with that was there. And I remember pulling her aside. I was like, you cannot tell anyone you saw me here. <laughs> But it really became, you know, more and more persistent. And, and um, the more time I prayed, I spent praying about it, the more clear it became to me that I needed to visit convents. And so I started doing that and really, you know, I mean, felt very strongly that I was called to enter, met this Franciscan community and visited there after the first visit. I remember crying on my way back to school because I didn't want to go back to school. I wanted to stay with the sisters. And I was not expecting that reaction. Um, I remember thinking, I'm going to go back to school and you know, not think about this ever again. And it was the complete opposite. Can I ask, cause yeah. how old are yeah. you at this point? Because your school is different to our school. So you were about... Oh, at this point, I was 18. Okay. 18, 19. Um, and... Um, visited that convent, went back to school, and it was one of those things where I'd be in class and I'd think, oh, if I were there right now, I'd be in the Adoration Chapel, or if I were there, I'd be, you know, praying evening prayer with the sisters. I mean, I just could not stop thinking about it, and it was always back to their life in prayer. It wasn't about the work they were doing, or it wasn't about the sisters themselves, but just that time that they got to spend with the Lord and really devoting their entire lives to Jesus. So I did go back for a visit, a second visit, and it was during that visit that I asked to enter. And mm-hmm. I remember the vocation director at the time was like, you know, mother might make you wait until after you graduate college, but we discern this and, you know, it just see what she says. And mother ended up saying, if you want to enter now, um, you know, if you go through, once going through the application process, if we see that your application, you know, we feel that you can enter now, you can drop out of college if you want and enter now. And that's what happens. I mean, the application process is pretty intense and rigorous. Yeah. You know, all kinds of like, which is good, but um, background checks and evaluations from doctors and psych evaluations, et cetera. And so I did end up dropping out of college at 20 to enter um, that community. What and were you studying there, at college? I was studying philosophy and psychology okay. as a double major. Yeah, and actually also pre-med. I was thinking I would go to medical school. So I'd taken the MCATs, which are which is a test in the United States that you take to go um, to be accepted into medical school. And so I had all these other things, you know, going on in my life. It was a very, I feel like typical college student where I was involved in all kinds of organizations and clubs and had lots of friends and and then I dropped this bombshell on my friends and family that I was going to drop out of college to enter the convent and the only person that wasn't surprised was my sister because when we were kids she I've been journaling since I was in the second grade Mm -hmm. and when we were kids she would read my journal and I in my journal it was just like letters to Jesus and um, I would write about wanting to be a sister in them and so she pointed this out to my family and to my mom, especially, who was like, what do you mean you want to, you know, leave school and leave everything behind? So your mom, although she was devoutly Catholic, found it quite hard to come to terms with? Yes. Yeah. I think 
because, you know, your parents like have all kinds of plans for you. Mm. And um, I think not only just because I wanted to leave school, but also, you know, entering religious life meant I wasn't going to be home all the time or like I didn't have a phone anymore. Mm. Wasn't going to be able to email. She couldn't just call me whenever she wanted or um, of course like the idea of like her wanting me to get married and have children someday and so mm. yeah she did have a hard time I mean she came around eventually but it was it was rough going there for my family for a little bit mm. yeah and I think it was definitely more of the separation you know yeah of um I, I, it's different for every community but with the community Andrew we could only go home once every three years for two weeks um, I think we could write one letter a week to our families. We got a phone call every six weeks. So it was it was pretty limited. Uh, was that based in the States or were you in Rome? Yes. No, this was based in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so, yeah, I did. I was accepted to enter. I um, entered in 2011, went through three years of the novitiate and then made temporary vows. And I was in temporary vows for five years before I discerned out, but I discerned out before final vows. And so it varies per community, but typically you make final vows about nine years in, eight, nine years in, and I left a year before my final vows. Wow. So at this point you're hurtling towards 30. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I was 28 when I left. Wow. Mm-hmm. So how, how was that? leaving um it was it was something that i'd been kind of grappling with for a solid year year and a half probably before i finally took like decided to leave it was very much this fear i think that kept me i probably could have left sooner but it was very much this fear of not knowing what life in the world would be like mm-hmm. when i you know if i did leave um, my entire twenties was religious life. And so I didn't know how to adult quote unquote, you know, yeah. I didn't have a bank account, didn't have any worldly possessions at all. We wore a habit. So I had no clothes, you know, nothing really. Um, I didn't know. I just was so afraid too of like what people would think, what my family would think. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was entering my parish was so like excited and proud. Um, yeah. And my pastor would write these updates in the church bulletin. I just remember thinking, I'm going to let everybody down. But it also became this thing where I knew that if I stayed, I wasn't being completely honest with myself, with the Lord, with just anybody. I was, you know, the longer I was there, the more of a shell of myself that I was becoming. I'm a pretty joyful person mm. overall. And um, I was not happy at all that last year and so what were the what were the beginning signs what started to <clears throat> manifest uh, itself that actually this I mean, may not be what where i'm meant to be i was i mean i was crying every single day mm. you know and but i'm also the type of person that i didn't want i was very honest with my superiors about it but i wasn't like bringing this to community things and so when I would tell mother, you know, I'm not okay. And she would say, but you seem, you're always smiling. And I'm like, well, I'm not gonna, you know, be pouting. I didn't want to like bring people down or bring the mood. You know what I mean? Like, 
Um, but yeah, I was, I was, you know, I wasn't, I mean, just very like, I feel like tangible things where I was crying all the time. I'd wake up dreading the day. Yeah. Um, really becoming kind of bitter. Would you say you were slowly becoming depressed or? Yes. Oh, I was definitely depressed. Yeah. I started seeing a therapist um, because I was so sad. I've always kind of struggled with anxiety ever since childhood, but it was like to a whole other level hmm. um, by the time I left. And, so and that... I also sorry. realized I didn't want to make, oh no, sorry. I didn't want to make final vows or even renew my vows because renewal of vows was coming up uh, just a couple of months before, when, before I did actually leave. I didn't want to do it because it was the next thing. And, and so, yeah, I did, I did make that decision of, I don't think I can, you know, I can keep doing this. And I, yeah, I mean, thankfully the process before final vows is fairly simple. If you do want to leave, it's really just a matter of writing a letter to mother general saying, I've discerned this isn't for me and I'd like to be dispensed of my vows. If you do it after final vows, it's a whole other process, but Mm -hmm. Wow, but yeah, that it, takes a lot of courage. Can I just say it's not an easy thing to. You. It it really does. Thank you, and it was very much one of those things for me of like, my entire identity at this point was wrapped up in sister, mm. you know, mm. and um, it didn't. I'm a I'm a pretty slow processor, so my reactions come later, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, after I had already you know had the conversation with mother that I wanted to leave, um, I, and I wrote the letter, I'm pretty sure I wrote the letter, I handed it to her, and it was like a day or so later, I was talking to my spiritual director, and I like lost it with him, like just bawling, you know, and I was like crying, like, I'm not a bride of Christ anymore, Hmm. like, who even am I, you know, I just felt so completely stripped of everything, yeah, um, and didn't like had no idea where to go or how to move forward and so it was yeah it was it was a really really sad time yeah it's a complete it's like an identity crisis basically yes yeah and and also layered on top of that is the guilt maybe am i I, is this really what you want right am i being selfish yeah yeah, there was so much guilt. There was so much like just, just devastation. Layers. It was yeah, it was like my entire world like was shattered. Um, so so I I, just... I do see I I uh, see people that leave these religious communities and um, organizations, and mm-hmm. they seem to go on a completely different path. They seem to yeah. reject everything of of where they once were and accept everything of the world and it's really it breaks my heart um yeah how how did you like you you clearly love the church and you love your faith how did you maintain your faith well there was so when I left initially I was I you know I went through the depressed stage and then I was angry Hmm. and um so it's a typical grieving process right yeah yeah i was very angry and um as a sister so i made i went through the novitiate made first vows a few months after first vows i was sent to my first assignment was um the vatican 
and I served at the Vatican Embassy in Washington, D.C. And so I very much got like a front row seat to <laughs> the happenings of the church. Um, served Pope Francis my first year. And um, and then ended up, that was only supposed to be a one-year assignment. It ended up being three years. But I just remember, and that really, that experience as, uh, in hindsight, I can look back and be very grateful for it. But it was kind of when the, my, the breakdown of my vocation really started at that assignment. And I was so angry when I left religious life um, and just kind of like disgusted with the church and the hierarchy of the church. Mm-hmm. And I think did what a lot of people do, whereas they completely identify the church as bride of Christ with those who are who are in charge. Yeah. And I just remember like going to mass and being like so angry. And I was like, I'm not going to go to church anymore. And so I just stopped going to mass. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of like let my, let that anger and bitterness fester. And, um, how long, how long did that go on for? It only went on for maybe three, four months. Um, but I was, I decided to walk the Camino de Santiago mm. six weeks after I left the convent. And it was a very spontaneous decision, all providential, and it fell into place for me to walk it. But it was really on the Camino and like being, you know, off the grid more or less um, and living out of a backpack that I started to be able to sort through these things and see just physical beauty, like the physical beauty of churches in Europe that we don't have in the United States. Hmm. Yeah. Um, or here, actually, you have yeah. you have nicer churches in the States than we do. <laughs> it's really dismal here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, we just, you know, and, and getting to be separated physically from, like, what I had experienced, you know, in the convent um, and really began sorting through that. Um, that was really the beginning of it for me. And after the, I actually ended up, I started my Camino in Lourdes and ended up ending it unplanned, but it ended up ending it in Fatima. So it ended up being more of a Marian Camino than Mm -hmm. anything. And by chance ended up staying with these Dominican nuns in Fatima. And that really was kind of the beginning of healing for me, of, of healing my kind of my hurt you know from from that from everything was staying with these sisters who took such good care of me post Camino Mm -hmm. um and realizing too like I my you know who I am really is wrapped up in this in like child of God and to deny that was like causing me to turn into this like ugly ugly person you know of just so much anger and bitterness and I mean, it comes down to a choice of like, do I want to hold on to this hurt or am I willing to like allow myself to be healed um, by God in it? And know too that he very much, like he's the most hurt out of anybody mm. from everything that's happening in the church and outside of it. And so, I mean, it's, it's, it was a process. It's still a process. Mm. Um, but that Camino really opened, opened me up to, you know, to, allow for healing to begin yeah and then a few months later i went to rome and that was a, a very kind of redemptive trip to be to really be back at the church <laughs> to yeah. be back in vatican city how beautiful um, that he uses 
yeah things that hurt you yes to heal you so the nuns were the ones that started your healing process very much yeah he's so tender like that I know. And I was so adamant too. I was, you know, I met, and even like on the Camino, I mean, and this is where my Instagram handle comes from. Excellent on the run. Okay. Because on the Camino, I met two Franciscan friars of the renewal. Oh, wow. (laughs) And a deacon friend of theirs. And I grew up with the friars in New York city, you know, seeing them often. Um, but I, I met these, these three middle-aged men um, and it ended up walking all the way to Santiago with them. And I was, you know, initially very like, yeah, I'm just walking this for fun. Um, so it took many days, you know, of getting, of just being able to share parts of myself and finally telling them, oh, I just actually, I just left the convent after eight years. Um, but one of the priests, his name is Father Conrad. He he was who posed Fatima. I was like, you should go to Fatima after. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I have other plans. And Fatima and, is not one of them. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. I was like, I'm going to travel through Spain. I don't want to go to Fatima. And obviously that didn't happen because I ended up in Fatima. But he was who, you know, was like, and you can stay with these Dominican sisters, these nuns. And I was like, get out of here. Definitely not. <laughs> um. So clearly God always has a last laugh, but... Um, yeah, that really, I remember, and even talking with the, mo- the superior, the mother of the, of that convent, you know, initially was just like, yeah, I just want the Camino. And then she would meet with me every night. I don't know why I agreed to meet with her every night, but I was just like, okay, sure. And then, you know, finally told her, well, I just left the convent. And that really, yeah, that really was a catalyst of beginning my healing process from, mm. from my experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I have a similar, not a similar story, but the healing. So where I was hurt was in a completely different kind of um, religious grouping, but the healing came from, cause I've been running these retreats for women and I couldn't get a priest. And anyway, I finally uh, got a priest to come and give a talk. And he was a priest from Opus Dei. And he, I, I for the first few retreats, it was like, no way, I'm not having any Opus Dei priests at the, you know, retreat. And yeah. He, I said to him afterward, I said, you, you do not understand your, your acceptance of coming to the retreat and giving a talk and hearing. I said, the healing that you have given me on, on a extremely deep level is profound and you wouldn't understand it, but your healing is, is, has come in one day that has been years, years and years in the in the making. Like it, it's taken years for me to, you know, think, okay, I'll 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 listen to what you have to say. And yeah. I said, you've got no idea of, of how much you just being here is healing layers and deep deep wounds in my heart. So thank you. So he yeah. uses God uses everything. He really does. And I say that often, you know, like nothing is lost. Nothing is ever lost. And I, you know, I really do think he uses almost our greatest wounds to bring about the greatest of redemption. And every time I go back to Rome, you know, I just had a meeting at the Vatican a few days ago. I'm just like, how is this even possible? I practically spit on the ground when I left. I'm like, (laughs) I'm never stepping foot in this place again. Um, Hmm. 
but yeah, he really, the Lord really, really does use every little thing. Nothing is forgotten, you mm-hmm. know, by him. He, he uses everything. He, um, want, he, wants, he wants our healing more than we do. Yes, very much. Very much so. And I'm, I mean, I see that play out in my life daily now. Mm. Um, and I do think that experience, you know, as, as hard as it was, those three years at the church um, have made me love her in a way that I don't think I would now if it hadn't been for that experience. Mm. You know, and I think I shared this on one of my Instagram posts was at one point I thought I really felt like I'd had it. And I called mother, like asking, I asked her for a transfer. I said, I, you need to transfer me immediately. Like I'm going to leave the convent. And this was maybe a year into that assignment. And she said, you know, can you wait just a few more, a few months until I can figure out who to send as your replacement? And I remember going to the chapel thinking I would, I was, I, I feel so relieved, you know? And I said in prayer, I was like, Jesus, I'm mother said yes to a transfer. And rather than feel peace, I just felt such dread. And it was this very clear, like, I don't know if it was voice or what, but just from the Lord saying, if you leave here, you will leave me here. And I was like, oh no, you know, Mm. and I called mother. I was like, I'm sorry, I take it back. Mm. You can't transfer me. I don't want to be transferred. And that assignment did not get easier, but my prayer deepened in a way that sometimes I almost yearn for that. Mm. Um, of just feeling like I had nothing but but that intimacy with him in prayer. And it was being in a really hard place and a, and a place of deep suffering to be able to, to encounter him that way. Mm. And so, yeah, there's there's definitely always these gifts, even in the midst of, like, darkness. But, mm. I, you know, it took that for me to learn to learn that intimacy with him. Yeah, I, th- I think maybe from what I'm hearing, the fact that you are completely vulnerable yes, is what has brought about healing. Yes. A greater healing. Be- yes. Like no, no, no walls up, no defenses, like with the, right. the priests and then with the, with mother, like being honest, being authentic. Yes. That, that goes a long very way. Much. Yes, very much. And then, and yeah, and like I said, I, I think because getting this front row seat at at these things that were happening, you know, with different people in the church. So was this the time seat, of the scandal? The the well which, which one? Scandal? There's <laughs> been a few of those. <laughs> which one? Um the, the, the sexual scandals in the church in the States with with um what was this his... was while it was with what this was while McCarrick was McCarrick. being investigated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this was before the McCarrick report was released, mm-hmm. but yeah. So right. while it was being investigated, um, and, you know, I mean, we I lived at the embassy, at the Vatican embassy, so also living, you know, the sisters were on one side, and then the nuncio at the time was Archbishop Vigano, yeah. so he was my boss, and the priests lived on the other side of, of the residence. And so getting to live with, with them in community, um was an interesting experience as well but but yeah yeah, i mean just really seeing the humanity of the church yeah in a way that i don't think i would have ever had the opportunity to had it not been for that experience 
Um, I think we can hold then, clergy up on a pedestal when, but yes. when you work with them, as I do now as well, you realize actually you're a real human and, and yeah. with, with, with faults. Yes, very much, very much. And even, you know, the Holy Father, I mean, like, I remember my first time seeing him tired. I was like, wow, he's human. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we really do hold him on a pedestal. Yeah. Um, and, and that yeah. also shows us how much they rely on our prayers, and I don't pray for them yeah, enough. Very much. Very, very much so, yes. Mm. And I remember that the priests of the Nunchi Tour, I mean, they – were grateful because they had that sense of community there were eight that lived there hmm. and i just remember thinking oh like diocesan priests don't always have that no. you know they're usually alone yeah um yeah yeah but i think it was really seeing kind of the woundedness of her members in that assignment that led me to now in hindsight i, I mean i like i said really can love love the church mm-hmm. in a way that i i don't think i would have been able to um but then seeing too, like how Jesus is hurt by these things that are happening. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah, so yeah, being really prudent. I like I, I try to really be prudent when I talk about these things on social media or even just with my friends and family, because I don't ever want to be divisive. But yeah. you know, there does there is an honesty that needs to be said as well. Um yeah. yeah. I remember um hearing somebody say once that you don't um, not love Jesus because of how ugly his wounds are. Yeah. Like that really yeah. spoke to me. I thought I, you can't reject the church because of it, the uh, the wounds of the members, you know, the, the wounding right. that the members put on his body. Um, yes. And very much knowing too that like Jesus knew this was going to happen, yeah. you know, yeah. before. Like he tells us in scripture, like, you know, when he says, when he leaves Peter the keys of the church and he says nothing can destroy her. I mean, he knew this was going to be happening mm-hmm. how many centuries later and how he still chose to suffer and die for her yeah. as his bride, you know. Um, yeah. And then, so I do think I very much feel this sense of like, we need to do what we can to alleviate the, the, the suffering our wounds cause him. Mm-hmm. Um just love him for more. For those who are, yeah, just love him even more. Try to really, like, I'm, you know, not perfect by any means, but to really try to be, like, in a state of grace and to love him. Um, mm. Yeah, like you said, love him more. So so yeah. you've left the convent, you've done the Camino, yeah. you've, you're, you're <laughs> working, well, no, you're not working yet. You're, the nuns have kind of softened a, a, a hardness of your heart mm-hmm. where, where do you go from here yeah so yeah so walk the camino finish the camino became excellent on the run the camino that's because people would say oh you're the two friars a deacon and excellent on the run and so i was like oh, that'd be a great you know that's that's a funny little thing and then when i got instagram i decided to take it on as my handle um came back home so traveled for a little bit after the camino did you end up going home. through spain I did. I did end up going through Spain, went, you know, visited Madrid, Barcelona, like all over. Um, kind of was like not knowing what to do with my life. And I'd finished, I forgot to mention, I'd finished school as a sister mm-hmm. and um, decided I wanted to pursue further degrees. And so um, 
was like, well, I'll just go back to school. So I moved back to Washington, D.C. I'd gone to Catholic U for my undergrad. And D.C. seemed familiar, but wasn't, you know, it was far enough away from home where I felt like I could be independent, but mm-hmm. still close if I needed to come home for a weekend or something. Mm-hmm. And so moved back to Washington, D.C., got a job there. And then the pandemic broke out, <laughs> you know, and so I was just kind of I like the rest of the world, just kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty almost dissatisfied. Like I was just like, where, where's my life going? Or didn't really feel like I was fully like passionate or alive with what I was doing. Um, did you so doubt? Up, oh, very much. I just felt like I was like, I had no direction. I remember one conversation, one of my best friends asked me, she was like, how are you really doing? And I just bawled you know, broke down in tears. Like, I was like, my life has no direction. Hmm. I'm almost 30. Like, you know, it's like, I don't know what to do with myself. And I don't remember what she said, but I just, she was just, she just kind of listened. And um, travel has always been one of those things that kind of re shifts my perspective. Um, And so I went, that was when I went to Italy, um, decided to go to Italy as soon as they allowed for Americans to travel there again. And that summer, it was only supposed to be a week-long visit, ended up staying all summer and hopping around Italy and um, ended up in Medjugorje also. So you, it really is a Marian <laughs> trajectory. Yeah, my entire, now that I'm like talking about it, I'm like, wow, Our Lady really has played a major role in my life, hasn't she? Yeah. And that this was also, you know, during like I said, during COVID. So it was, I got this invitation to go to Medjugorje and I was doubtful about Medjugorje. I know everybody has all kinds of opinions. Mm. I myself was doubtful as well. Um, I did not realize I was going to be going for what they call Malati Fest, which is a Marian festival that they have every year. It's like World Youth Day, but for Our Lady. Oh, wow. And so there were 60,000 people there. And I was like, how are this many people here during a worldwide pandemic, you know? (laughs) Where were they all from? All Croatia. over the world. How did they get there? I know. That's what I remember thinking. How is everybody here? This many people. It was unreal. And Cardinal Seurat was oh, the yeah. like main was the main speaker. Speaker. Um, and they had all kinds of speakers, but he was the main speaker. And very much the sense, you know, the theme, at least for me, was very much a sense of like just to not be afraid, very JP too, but mm. to not be afraid of like what was happening in the world, to just not be afraid of, to really pursue Christ um, and to trust that he will take care of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was after Malati Fest that I ended up quitting my like regular nine to five job in, in Washington and um, was just completely going to trust that I would figure it out. And I went back to D.C. And that was when my now job kind of landed in my lap. Wow. So it's it's so the courage that you showed leaving the convent really has played out in trusting, taking courageous steps. Yeah. Which is so funny because I'm a very type A person who needs to have a plan at all times. And so I think these like constant spontaneous things Mm. of ending up at a place that I had no intentions or plans to be at that ends up being, you know, really transformative for me in some way 
shape or form um yeah. i think it came from religious life yeah you know that vow of obedience <laughs> you're being obedient to him yeah to okay. him now but at the time you know in really in the convent when you're being told you're to be transferred here you're just like okay thank you yes mother i'll go um but yeah, now really very much just being obedient and in tune with, you know, with, with him through prayer. And in that time, yeah, that time I spend every day in prayer, but yeah, it's only yeah, possible I, if you are in tuned with yes. the Holy Spirit. And I can usually, I usually know when it's not of him because I don't have peace in it, mm. you know? So even if it's, it's spontaneous or seemingly chaotic to me and I'm running around or doing this and doing that there's always this interior peace and that I just follow. As long as I have that interior peace, I'm like, okay, this is, that's how I know this is of the Lord and not me or so, someone else. So do you still do a holy hour every day? I do. I do do a holy hour every day. So there are definitely some things that I take, I took away from religious life mm -hmm. that I still practice in my life today. Morning? Um, and that's, morning or night? Usually in the morning, I'm a morning person. <laughs> And I just know that if I save it for later, it probably won't happen. Yeah, same. So, yeah, definitely morning. Beautiful. But, yeah, trust is a funny thing in that way of... Can we I talk about that a little bit? Because I have I have lots of people in my life that you say you've just... I, I say to them, you just have to trust that he, he has it. Like, trust the yeah. process. Trust waiting. Trust the silence. And they're going, mm -hmm. how? So I'm asking yeah. you... What do I say? How do I, mean, I... I really think it's, it comes down to choice of like you either do it or you don't, you know, like courage wouldn't be courage if it wasn't a scary thing. Yeah. And so to, to say, okay, Lord, yeah, I trust in you. Um, and to take that next step to move forward. So with quitting my job, you know, it was actually quitting my job, like trusting that even if I quit my job, I was going to be taken care of. Mm. Um, because I easily could have just been like, oh, I'm gonna wait a couple, you know, I'm gonna wait a little while to quit, mm. or I'm gonna, gonna I'm gonna wait know. until I'm financially, you know, I've got a bit yes. of money behind me. Because what if I don't, you know, get a job and I don't have any money and, and yes. the thought process is or just like, spiral. Exactly, or just I'm gonna wait until I have another job lined up. Yeah, or um, you know, all there's always something, and I think ultimately you kind of have to bite the, the bite the bullet in a way mm. and just go for it um yeah and you know and then there's also too like for me there's this oh there's always this fear of failure and I've since come to realize especially in the last year like okay if it fails it fails and then we try something else you yeah. know yeah um but like failure is not the end of the world but I, I think, think that comes from knowing your truest identity because you're not being yes. defined by your failure or by your job Very or much. by your status. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the key. Very much. Yeah. And I joke, you know, I was, I was just saying this to a friend in Rome. I was, I went to Pope Benedict's funeral mm. a few days ago and a friend, um, stayed with me in my Airbnb, um, that I actually hadn't met in person before. Um, but we had a lot of mutual friends. So I was like, well, she can't be a complete <laughs> loony, crazy person. Yeah. If like, I, you know, people in my actual life have vouched for her and said, she's great. And I jokingly a few months ago said to her, well, I'm Jesus's favorite, you know, 
and she thought I was being like super snooty about it. And I was, and I told her when I saw her, um, when I, she finally came around, she had like a 15 minute, she had a 15 minute window to make a layover or something to come to be able to get here. And I was like, don't worry, I'll ask baby Jesus. And he never fails me because I'm his favorite. And she, she made her flight. She made her next flight and she gets to Rome and she's like, I always thought you were being so like, just like uppity about say about joking like that. And I, I said to her, I said, I wonder, I wonder how different the world would be if every single person just really knew, like actually yeah. believed. I mean, I really believe with everything that I am, that I am his favorite. That's but so I just wonder how people, you know, if, if we all lived from that lens, how different our lives would be. And we wouldn't be comparing yeah. with everybody else or, you know, we'd just be more grateful for what we do have. I mean, I, I really do think there's this disease of comparison in the world, Absolutely. especially like the Catholic world, you know, of like, well, her family looks like this or her life looks like this. And I'm like, I love my, I genuinely don't look around at anybody else's and think I wish I had that mm. um, because I'm so grateful with everything that I have now. Mm. But it comes from that place of like really knowing and believing with everything that I am, that I am so deeply loved by the lord yeah and i think it would be so much better if we all believe that too because it's true it's yeah. not some imaginary thing you know it's it's so very much the truth and i actually think i learned that from mother Teresa because she either wrote about it or, or spoke about it how you know her entire identity and even especially through her darkness of the soul that she suffered for 50 years was rooted in that of knowing that she was so like unconditionally loved by God. Yeah. And everything she did flowed from that. Well, I didn't know that until I was, yeah. um, I, as I told you before, I, I grew up Catholic, but yeah. I, I didn't, I knew, I knew the catechism. I knew everything, but I didn't know that I was completely and utterly loved by God. Like I didn't know it, know it. Um, and it wasn't and I think... until I knew it that my life began to change. Yeah. And I think most people don't know it or yeah. we go through the motions of even, you know, if you are practicing Catholic of you're just doing it because it's what we're being told to do and it's not coming from a place of love. It's ticking boxes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a game changer. And that's, yeah, that's, it's so beautiful. So it's simplicity, isn't it? It's being childlike. It really is. Like, right. The gate of heaven is so time. small that you have to get down on your knees to, like a mm -hmm. child height to get through it. And it's very much, very much. And I think that, you know, then that's where the trust, you know, you can place all your trust. And it's not, this doesn't mean I don't ever doubt or mm. I'm never afraid or I'm never thinking, well, what if it doesn't work out? Like, of course, I still have all those experiences. It's not like, yeah. you know, I'm running into these fires thinking, oh, it's going to be just fine. Yay! Like every day I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> What am I doing? This is me an epic failure. Yeah. You know, yeah. but. But, but it's how you deal with those um, fears and anxieties and, you know, abandon, abandoning those like, mm -hmm. okay, Lord, if this is what you want, then I want it to. Very much. And knowing Very that much. he won't leave you alone. Yes. You don't go into those yeah. fires alone. Yes. Um, yes, but and I think it's it's from feeling completely alone that I learned that you know yeah. it's from yeah. from that again back to 
religious life of like feeling so completely alone and like having no one or nothing to turn to mm. that I learned that. It you know, seems that you have a good relationship with your mother, ex-mother superior, if that's what you call her. Um, yes. So she's still in Rome. You're still in contact with the sisters or not just her? I No, I'm in contact with not all the sisters, but some of the sisters and her especially. Um, she wasn't the mother when I left. Okay. So she was the mother before, but she was the mother who's – I made my first vows into her hands. Mm-hmm. And so I actually didn't talk to her for a solid year after I left. Again, because angry, of anger, bitter, mm-hmm. hurt, yes. And um, I had met her blood sister. So her biological sister lived in Washington, D.C. And I'd met her as a sister. And we kind of kept in touch when I left. And I had mentioned to her I was going to Rome after the Camino. And she was like, oh, can you deliver something to my sister? And I was like, no, <laughs> I'd rather not. <laughs> and then mother emailed me and she was like, I heard you're coming to Rome. I'd love to see you. And I said, I remember, I mean, I was so rude. I was like, I'll give you, I think it's like, I have half an hour. <laughs> and I went and saw her and like immediately, you know, all my like anger just kind of lifted and. I mean, I just, I remember she, we ended up spending the whole day together, so clearly it wasn't half an hour. <laughs> and she said to me, she goes, I have tickets to a papal mass, do you want to come? And I was like, okay, not realizing it was the papal mass for World Day of Vocations. Oh. So I walk into St. Peter's and it was all these sisters. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> and, um... And she said to me after mass, we were walking back. I was walking her back to her convent. And I was like, why didn't you ever write? Because she didn't reach out to me either that entire year. Hmm. And I remember that was a, a, a hurt, you know, of like she doesn't care how I am or whatever. And she was like, I, I wanted you to be free to, you know, make start building your life for you and not feel like you needed to come back or you couldn't. Um, you know, do it on your own or whatever. Um, but I was praying for you and like love isn't measured by like actually being present always um, when it's unconditional. Mm-hmm. And my love for you has always been unconditional. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and that to me was like very, I mean, I still think back on that and get kind of emotional sometimes, but mm-hmm. that's how it is too with, with our relationship with God. Like he's not always going to be present in what we what we think as physically present or mm-hmm. having those constant consolations, you know, like a light, a, the spiritual life is not a constant consolation. Um, Isn't, but to know that sorry, it's not measured. It's not measured by feeling like he's always there. So when, you know, when you are like asking, where are you Lord? You know, and he's sleeping on the boat, like he's very much still present. Yeah. And that became clear to me when mother said that, of, you know, just because I wasn't writing to you or, calling to check on you or whatever like doesn't mean that I because I really in my mind I was like she doesn't care or she hates me because I left the community you know all yeah. the lies that I all that but isn't communication such an important um yes. tool to use properly to because the devil if we don't communicate if we don't speak our heart if we don't mm-hmm. the the enemy just fills us with all these lies 
Oh, for sure. And look, you know, I could have easily, like, in that year, been like, I'm, I left her. Because she wasn't, like I said, she wasn't mother when I left. Yeah. And so I didn't reach out to her at all. Yeah, and so I you could have reached out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I could have reached out, and I didn't reach out to her at all. But you, and, you're hurting. Oh, very much, yeah. 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 Oh, man. Yes. There's so much here. <laughs> Um, Life is funny in that way. <laughs> absolutely. Can can we talk a little bit, because you've just freshly come back from um, Pope Benedict's funeral. Yeah. And you, did you get to meet Cardinal Pell? I actually, I ran into him on Friday. Mm. So just this past Friday, what day is it, Tuesday? It's now mm. Thursday, yeah. But... Oh, Thursday, yeah. So like four or five days ago. And we found right on out. Borgo Pio. And he's, I mean, you know, he was elderly. He was 81. Mm -hmm. He has, his memory is impeccable. Yeah. He still remembers your name, like, years later. I know. He remembers details about your life that he asks about. I know. And it was, you know, Pope Benedict's funeral was very sad, but there was still this sense of joy. Mm. And so this was after the funeral. And so it was like, I, I think the sense of joy was a knowing that like this holy man, yeah. you know, his time was celebrating his life. Yeah. Um, but then too, Rome very much became this like Catholic Disney world of running into a bunch of your friends. <laughs> and so it was like, you know, you're just running into people and that you never see ever. Yeah. And he was one of those for me of running into him and, and talk, getting to chat for just a few minutes yeah. and then, you know, see you later. And not so when I, heard last night yeah um that he had passed away i was like no this is just a rumor yeah you know i thought it was like some kind of some kind of a rumor or something i know so and sad. then sure enough i ch i checked with somebody that would have known for sure and it wasn't and it was just i'm still in shock over it i know i found out going into mass yesterday morning and i had to read the prayers of the faithful oh. so i i said at the end can we please pray for the repose of the soul of Cardinal George Pell and my my priest looked at me and he said what I said yeah he's he's just died I just found out and then I'm walking wow. back to my seat I thought oh my and then father did a whole um mass for the dead yeah. and I thought what if it's a hoax and I'm just... <laughs> I, I oh really God. thought it was some kind of a rumor and I mean he loved Australia so much mm. you know um even though he was so persecuted, shock. it was so sad he for so Yeah. He really, I mean, his last years on earth were filled with persecution, mm -hmm. especially. Mm -hmm. He was a saint. He was such a saint of a man. I hope, I just wrote to somebody today, I hope he's celebrating with Pope Benedict the Oh, they will be. Heaven. Yeah. You know? Have you read his prison diaries? Not the whole thing. Yeah. Just parts of the first volume, but now I want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, you know? he baptized two of my children and he married my oh sister. Oh, my goodness. Oh. He was, and we had him over for dinner um, at my sister's, but he remembers, as you said, he remembers you, he remembers events in your Everything. life. And it's yes. like, wow. And he asks about it. I have trouble it's remembering never... my children's names. <laughs> right? And I'm always just in shock because it's like you're this, you know, powerhouse of a man. Yeah. Um obviously very highly ranked in the church and you'd remember like little me you know I know. um but he he really took the time you know when when he was with you mm. 
Um, he was he with took you. The time. Yeah, he was with you. Yeah. And and also the morning of the funeral, I ran into the sisters that take care of his residence. And so I remember asking, like, oh, how's Cardinal Powell? You know, as we're making our way into St. Peter's. So I was thinking about them, mm-hmm. too, um, since last night. But it's, yeah, it's such a shock. I'm so sad. Mm. But. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah. But I'm sure he's, what a heaven he's in, hey? Oh, my goodness. I, I posted this on my Instagram stories because a sister wrote me. And she was like, I hope he has a high rank in heaven. Or I'm sure he has a high rank in heaven because yeah. he went through yeah. just hell on earth. But yeah, amazing. Yeah. And we just, we hope for the same for us. Exactly. We hope to be in the same. <laughs> like I, just hope, I just hope to get there too. <laughs> Me too. Whatever rank. Yeah. I just want to get in the door. <laughs> just let me through. Uh, I'll pull you up if you pull me up. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's the beauty of, of the church, right? We, it really we, is. We all help each other. And that's why I'm so yeah. grateful for your voice so that somebody Thank listening um, can hear hope or, you know, just just to know that you can trust him. Yes. He, just let go. And he will catch you. Very much. And he hasn't abandoned you. Mm. I feel like we all really struggle or many struggle with that. Yeah. That lie that they've been abandoned or forgotten. And it's yeah. and he hasn't at all. No. You see, I remember hearing the fact that he knows my name. Like he, yes. know, he knows my middle name even. Like he knows yeah. exactly who I am. That to me was just like, what? Are you for real? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not just yeah. a number. He actually yes. knows my name and he knows my my fears, my, my worry, and he still loves me. <laughs> anyway i know all right it's wild to think about that it is before i we finish this wonderful conversation i always ask my guests something that brought them joy this week so i know i'm putting you on the spot because i didn't tell you beforehand which i do to all my (laughs) guests is there something one thing that brought has brought you joy this week yeah, I, I mean, I was going to Pope Benedict the Sixteenth funeral. I wasn't supposed to be in Rome at all. Mm. I'm in a season of deep travel, intense travel for work, and to be able to just drop everything to go to Rome was, you know, it was a very spontaneous decision. But it happened. It everything fell into place, mm. even though it was, you know, a very last minute thing. And then seeing so many people that came, I was thinking about this on the flight back, that came for his funeral, um, this one man's yes to his vocation Mm. led to hundreds of thousands of people coming and to be able to celebrate his life, you know? Um, When they carried his casket away during the funeral, that was when it really hit me um, that he was dead. And everybody was just in the the piazza, was just clapping for him. Mm. And this went on for a while. And yelling, you know, Santo Subito Sainthood now. And I just thought, wow, you know, like how how amazing of a life he led. So that, yeah, I think going to Pope Benedict's funeral, even though it was obviously somber and sad circumstances. And seeing everybody, like a lot of my friends that came in for it too, who I never mm. see hardly ever. Um, I, can I, you did post on your stories that you were the last ones allowed in. Was that you? Yeah, yeah. 
So how did you orchestrate that? Well, my friend Mountain, he's the Catholic traveler on Instagram. Uh-huh. Um, he, his name, we his name is Mountain. Around. Yeah, his, that's his real name. His parents were hippies when he was born. <laughs> Pre-conversion. I thought maybe this was another coffee thing, but no. <laughs> no, his, his real name is Mountain. He, he's great. Um, he runs Catholic pilgrimages all over Europe and the Holy Land. Of course anyway, he does. With a name like Mountain, Mountain, he's got no choice. <laughs> <laughs> I know. He um he lives in Rome and um we just we wanted to see Pope Benedict one more time but there was a ton of people in line and so we had stepped out of line and we're going to leave and he, he all of a sudden goes let's just wait until we're the very last ones like we'll just step out of line and just wait at St. Peter's until they let no one in anymore. And so that's essentially what we did was we just waited and we went in, we walked into St. Peter's and they shut the doors behind us. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And so, yeah, we were the very last ones to see Pope Benedict, but what was really beautiful, I learned this while I was there for the funeral was they actually kept vigil with his body Mm. throughout the night. Um, in the days leading to his funeral. So there were always Swiss guards with him. And if you lived in the Vatican, they would come and make visits throughout the night to pray Mm. with his body. And so I just was really moved by that when I learned that. Mm. But yeah, it was, it was a very beautiful experience. I sadly never experienced JP too. You know, I was too young when he died. So I don't, I love him because of, you know, the, things I've read of his and learned about him since, but I didn't experience JP two. So Pope Benedict really mm. was my first Pope more or less. Mm. And he played a huge role in my spiritual formation, you know, reading his books and his encyclicals, especially Deus Caritas S. And mm. yeah, so to get to be there for his funeral was just really special. How beautiful. I love yeah. I love I remember with JP two's funeral just the grandeur of the Vatican and and the church. And then you see this humble pine yeah. almost looking casket. Mm-hmm. Like Did you get to go? Did you go to that funeral? No, no. I, oh. I met him three I, I met him three times, but I never went to his oh funeral. Oh my gosh. Um Yeah, and that's that's how Pope Benedict was. You know, he's in a he's in that wooden casket. I know. It's just and like it was, wow. Yeah. Or even during the visitation, I remember, you know, they kept him right in front of that Valdecchino um, at St. Peter's in front of the Holy Spirit window. And it's obviously so grand when you walk in there. And then there he was, his, his tiny body on yeah. this yeah. plank. plank. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. Was, but it was really, like I said, very, there was still so much joy in the midst of, you know, mourning him. There was so much joy. Well, it's a good, it's a testament to his yeah. life how he, yes. it's sad, but we're so happy because he lived such a good life. Like yes, he, he brought so and, many people together. He, he enriched our faith mm-hmm. and that's, that's what brings us joy, right? Yeah. Yes, very much. Such a testament. Yeah. Anyway, we could keep yeah. talking, but our listeners <laughs> might have reached their destination by now. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> if you've got to the end, congratulations. We're so grateful. <laughs> they will have. They will have. Don't you worry. 
Um, Mar- is it Marilus? Did I get it right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. You did. Yes. Marilus, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to share some of your heart with us because I'm, I, as, a, as a woman, as somebody who has been wounded and is, you know, moving through her wounds and um, it is so beautiful to hear other people's testimonies and their heart that you're never alone and nothing is ever wasted and you can right. trust him. You can trust him. Yes. Yeah, all is redeemed. Yeah. So thank you so much. Thank um, you so much. It was lovely, lovely getting to know you. You as well. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. <laughs> okay.